0: So today, this morning, we continue on with our study of 1 Samuel. And uh, as we begin this message, let's start with a prayer. Almighty and most merciful Father, we humbly submit ourselves and fall down before your majesty, asking you from the bottom of our hearts that the seed of your word now sown among us may take such deep root that neither the burning heat of persecution cause it to wither, Nor the thorny cares of this life choke it, but that as seeds sown in good ground, it may bring forth thirty, sixty, or a hundredfold, as your heavenly wisdom has appointed. Amen. Uh, Please turn with me, and we'll be going over the entire chapter, but please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15, and we are going to read the section from verse 22 to 31. First Samuel chapter 15, verse 22 to 31. When you have found it, please rise in reverence for God's word and hear now the word of the Lord. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul And Saul bowed before the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. It truly has been a joy to share the word of God with you all these past many years, and also, especially in these recent days, to go over 1 Samuel with you. And at the end of chapter 14... Uh, we were provided with an epilogue or a closing of Saul's story. But starting chapter 15, so even though Saul is still in the narrative, it's mainly there to serve now, as we'll see as a backdrop, for the rise of David. And for David to reign, there was a rejection of a former king that we'll uncover in this chapter. And this is quite the sad chapter in many ways. And so there are three sections that we'll go over from this passage. And the points aren't necessarily sequential in the passage. In some ways they are, but the chapter and the passage that we read house these three main theological points. And in multiple areas, but these three theological points are housed in this chapter. And they're quite significant. And these are theological points that actually many people have a question about or have questions about and the three are vengeance, obedience, and repentance. Vengeance, obedience, and repentance. And the first section will go over vengeance. And vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And we see this in verses 1 through 9, even 18, and verses 32 to 33. And before I go any further, it should be noted that From verse 1, Samuel is reminding Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. It's God who appointed Saul, set him up, and anointed him as king. And so if God establishes you, then you have a purpose. And that purpose is discovered as we listen to the words of the Lord. And this idea will pervade throughout the chapter, but it's right there from the beginning. God anoints a servant, and a servant then is to listen to the word of the Lord who has set you up. Why are you in the position that you're in right now? Would you consider yourself a self-made man or woman? Um, there was this, uh, there is this politician who ran for president uh, some odd years ago, whose main platform was that he was a self-made man. His whole shtick was that his story was built on self-made successes. You know, I'm a self-made man, and. When I heard him say that in his speeches, when I saw his platform, I thought it was odd because, well, his older brother was actually president of the United States years before him, and his father was president before his older brother. His family's net worth is about $500 million. And while I don't doubt that he put some hard work into his life, it was so interesting to me that he considered himself a self-made man. But here it's made clear why Saul was anointed king. It was to listen to the word of the Lord. He's telling Saul directly, you didn't make yourself. God set you up. God set you up so that you would listen to the word of of the Lord. And with the word of the Lord, we see the commandment of the Lord. And what was that commandment? It was to annihilate, devote to destruction. And now that that word that's been translated, devote to destruction, is repeated eight times in this chapter. And it was to devote to destruction or annihilate every single And by every Amalekite, he meant down to the animals. And we've read in verse 3, now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And immediately our response may be that this is a horrible command. And indeed, it is a horrid command. How can this be the words of a compassionate God? Like it says in Psalm 145, 9, the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Or in Exodus 34, 6, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. As God revealed his commandments to Moses, he would say this, The Lord, the Lord of God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So how does this kind of make sense with this severe command? And this indeed is a severe command, and the scriptures, as we see, does not disnify it. It doesn't tone it down or sanitize it for our sensibilities. And our claim is that the scriptures are true, and if it's true, it's important. And secondly, we should be asking more than how can it be so severe, we should be asking why is it so severe? And asking why is really asking, is this severity justified? You know, I see a lot of public engagement today where it's more important that we're nice and we tone down rhetoric, even if it means we water down the truth. And I was joking with a brother even yesterday that the 11th commandment is thou shalt be nice. For the sake of evangelism, this is what people will say, for the sake of evangelism, we shouldn't talk about these highly politicized subjects. People used to say that a lot when I was younger. And now with almost every topic politicized, what can we talk about that's important without some folk accusing us of being too political? You know, make sure that your leaders fear God. Well, you can't say that. That's political. Or how do we deal with viruses in our churches and homes? That's political too. What about schools, education, and raising your kids? It's political. But what we don't get is politics is not separate from God. Politics is under God. We think that by just keeping politics separate from the church, we can keep God out of the public square and the public square out of God. But that's not true. People will say, just keep your God in your churches But that's not who God is. God is sovereign and he reigns over all the universe. All the earth will be filled with his glory. So just keeping God in church is not possible because that's not who God is. I find that kind of intriguing that we would think that politics is something separate from God. Politics is under God. And this kind of thinking that politics should stay out of the church was taught to me in my generation, and I wouldn't be surprised if it was even before that. I'm a Gen Xer, so even before that, I wouldn't be surprised if baby boomers thought that. But definitely millennials and Gen Zers have been subject to all of the fruit of this kind of teaching, this idea that we must separate politics from religion so what happens now in 2022 when every young person has been taught in their schools to see things according to their school's progressive ideology and what happens when these ideas start to overlap with the church and with what the church has been teaching for thousands of years should the church stop what happens when sin becomes political Should the church stop? The murder of infants is a sin. Homosexuality and sexual immorality in all its forms is a sin. But it's become political. So do we stop talking about it now? Should we change our minds about it now? I've actually had some social engagement where someone asked me why Christians Are so unprogressive. In other words, Christians with their orthodoxy can seem so backwards, saying things like, get with the times, you know, get with the times. It's not, and you can insert some random year. It's not, you know, 19, whatever. I can't insert a year in the modern era because no matter what year it is, or no matter what year it was, there's some form of fascism or despotism that people. vying for, but they'll say, it's not blankety-blank. It's 2022. So how would I respond and how I responded to this person was a longer form answer than this, but I would ask the person then, what are we progressing toward? What are we progressing toward if we're so progressive as a society? What are we progressing toward if we are so progressive That means we should continue to evolve and grow and develop. What's the goal? Is it the Marxist utopia where everyone shares everything? But is made sure that you share everything by one governmental authority? Because that's the only way you will force people to share everything. And that one source of authority will invariably be corrupt because power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Or is it Nietzschean? where we make up our own rules now because we have so-called, we have uh, killed God? Is it Freudian, where our ultimate goal is sensual pleasure? Is it Rousseauian, where we must protect the self from the masses so that the individual will is elevated? This idea of you need to speak your truth is out there. What is your idea then of progression? Because the Christian idea is also to progress. The ideal for the Christian is to progress, but the goal isn't some utopia that is a man-made ideal. The Christian ideal is to progress, but the goal is God. And it's the God of the Bible. That's the Christian's goal. He is from whom all things were, are, and will be. When the disciples were troubled, because Jesus was talking to them, telling them about his imminent death, he said to his disciples in John 14, let your hearts not be troubled or let not your hearts be troubled. Don't be troubled. What did he say after that in John 14? He said, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? How did Jesus console his disciples? Did he tell them, don't let your hearts be troubled, I'm going to change your circumstances? Did he tell them, don't let your hearts be troubled, I'll give you more power? Don't let your hearts be troubled because I'll give you more stuff, more technology. No, he tells them to believe in him because he is preparing a room for them in his father's house. The goal is to be with God. That's the Christian's goal. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 6:33, "But first seek, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you." It's when we seek these things before God and his righteousness, that's when we run into all these problems. Instead of progression, then, we have regression. All these things need to come after God and his righteousness. So, to go back to the original question, why was it so severe, must be asked with, was it righteous? Righteous. Was God's decree righteous? And God tells us why he decreed the annihilation of all of the Amalekites. God tells us in verse 2, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. You see, when Israel was freed out of Egypt and Pharaoh's grip. When they were still discombobulated and they were just starting to have some kind of semblance of what was going on, the Amalekites attacked. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 17 to 19, says this, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Even in Exodus 17, 14 to 16, this is what it says Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the years of Joshua. That I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek under, from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Since that declaration, it's been 300 years. 300 years since that declaration. But the Lord has not forgotten. And no one can say that the Lord has not been patient. And this chapter indicates that the Amalekites have not changed over the course of 300 years. In verse 18, we read that, And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are Consumed. They are still sinners. They have not repented. Samuel recounts King Agag's war crimes before even hacking him to pieces in verse 33. As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. Is the Lord truly not patient when he has waited 300 years for a wicked people to repent? And this is where the people of God, then understanding this, can rejoice even in God's vengeance. In fact, the Bible puts together the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the Lord's judgment together. In Isaiah chapter 61 verse 2, it says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. It's put together. Matthew twenty four thirty to 31, Jesus says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. There is a reckoning coming, and it's also tied with Salvation. For the people of God, we find comfort in the vengeance of God. God doesn't forget how his people have been persecuted, how his people have been shamed, how his people have been murdered and killed. That's complete deliverance. That's the full gospel. That's the full good news. It's where God's enemies receive wrath and his people gain his favor. And perhaps this is lost now on a generation who believes that everyone is entitled to mercy regardless of their heart's disposition. But this is not what the Bible teaches. God jealously protects those and only those that are under his fold. And this would serve as a warning to those that would touch or persecute the sheep of his flock. Next point is obedience. Obedience over sacrifice. And we see this in verses 10 to 23. God commands Saul to kill every single thing. Man, woman, child, infant, ox, sheep, camel, donkey. Every single living thing in the Amalekite territory. God is using Saul as his instrument to exact his judgment on a nation. But does Saul carry it out? Well, in verse 8, He kills the people, minus Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And then he also keeps what he would deem as good, like the best of the sheep and the cattle, but gets rid of all the rest. Whatever he deemed worthless, he got rid of. But if he deemed it good, he would keep it. And in verse 11, an interesting descriptive is used for the Lord's reaction to Saul. This is what God says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. I regret. That word regret is the same word for repent. You would translate it the same from the Hebrew. You could read it as, I repent for making Saul king. Or in other versions, you would read it as, I am sorry For making Saul king. And using words like regret, repent, or sorry for God may seem off putting to those that are more orthodox in the faith, but we'll address it in the next and final point. But it's important that we read this to see why God says this. Why does God say that he regrets making Saul king? God's assessment of Saul is something deeper than just keeping a few sheep, cattle, and the king as a trophy. Saul's not following God's commands means more than a simple failure of following God's commands. God saw it as turning his back from following him. And if you don't follow him, you're no longer a servant of God, disciple of God. If you don't follow God, you're no longer his servant or disciple. I ended last week's message with John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And we know that from 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, that those who follow Jesus obey him. If you say you're a follower of Jesus, you obey him. This is what 1 John chapter 2 verse 3 says and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments you know after hearing this it made samuel so angry it says literally the word angry that he would cry to the lord all night you know samuel took no pleasure in saul's failure and he wasn't happy that he would have to confront saul the next day in fact what we see here is what the commentator Joyce Baldwin calls, he calls it the personal cost of ministry. The personal cost of ministry. Ministers of God aren't simply bystanders or people removed from the emotions of the fray. And this shouldn't be surprising. I've often said to our leaders that the last door that you slam shut on your way out of a church is the senior pastor. But all ministers of God, senior pastors to a children's ministry volunteer, feel distressed, and they get worked up when someone tries to sabotage the kingdom of God. That's why when we pray, your kingdom come, we mean it, and we really want it, because ministers are invested in the kingdom of God. And so Samuel was invested in the kingdom of God, and so he was distressed when he saw what Saul did and how God responded. However, if you continue in the narrative, Saul is upbeat. He even built a monument for himself. He almost sounds giddy when he sees Samuel in verse 13. Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. This is what Saul says. Blessed be you. I did what God commanded. You know, some folks are so lost in their own fantasy that they can't even read a room anymore. And that's Saul. He directly contradicts what the Lord just said about him in a few verses, a few verses ago, by not completing the commands that God gave him. And after Saul's clueless greeting, Samuel immediately asks him, what are all these animal noises he's hearing then? And Saul thinks that he can play politics with Samuel. He tells Samuel that he brought these animals back to sacrifice to the Lord. Oh, so you kept some, even though the Lord said multiple times to completely annihilate everything here. Because why? Because you know better. I know better. You see, I didn't do all these things that God commanded because I know better. I know this is good for the Lord. I didn't completely follow through, but I did basically, basically follow through the commandments. Samuel can't take another word, and he yells, stop. He reminds Saul of where he was before the Lord, made him king, and reminds him of his mission again. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? So far, Samuel asks three questions in the narrative so far, but they are the same question: from "What is this bleeding of sheep and lowing of oxen that I hear?" The second question: "Are you not the head of the tribes of Israel?" To the third question: "And why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord and pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord?" They're all basically the same question. What kind of answer are these questions seeking? Why ask three basic questions again? Question like three times. Why ask this basic question three times? But how does Saul answer? In verse 20 he replies, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took, the, took of the spoiled sheep and oxen the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God. in Gilgal He kind of throws the people under the bus. Great politician. It's because of these guys, you know, I had to do these things. I am king after all. I'm responsible for all these people, and they wanted this. And in verses 22 to 23, which we read, is the climax of this dialogue. And this is what Samuel said has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as, in, as, is, as, is as iniquity and idolatry, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has also rejected you from being king. He starts off this section with another question. Does God get excited for your sacrifices over your obedience? No, for to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of rams. What Saul did was offer up his own will to God for God to follow. But he did not submit his will under God's. You know you're not following God when he needs to follow you. You convince yourself that these things of your will should satisfy God when it does anything but. You could say things like, but I did follow your commands, but I did these things for you, God. And a better one is, I didn't even have to go as far as I did. You should be even thankful I've done what I did so far. And this heart and attitude is highlighted in the next verse. Rebellion is like the sin of divination, presumption is like iniquity and idolatry. Divination is the bringing out of evil spirits or demons, and idolatry is the worship of another god. And he's saying these things are the same things, rebellion and presumption. I don't have to follow everything. God will understand. You know, he forgives. Eh. I mean, he doesn't know. He doesn't know my situation. But if I do this, I'm sure God will like it better. It all has something in common. This idea of rebellion, presumption, has something in common, and the focus is on the self. The focus is on the self. It goes all the way back to the garden when Eve was tempted, and the serpent would say that she would not die if they ate the fruit, but rather they would be like God you are as god if you do this and this lie still permeates through our society today so how does saul finally respond which leads to our last point repentance repentance or is it repentance or is it first let us go back and address the word for repent that was used for god did god really repent if not what does it mean that he did in verse 10 and verse 35? And classic theists will understand this to be an anthropomorphism. That means an like a human attribute that he kind of, you know, like uh, envelops. Or anthropopathism, which is a human way of showing feeling. So it's a human way of adopting attributes that we attribute to God and Or a human way of feeling that we attribute to God, like he smells, is an anthropomorphism. If God smells, does God literally smell when he's spirit and has no nose? But we would say he smells the offerings and sacrifices, and that aroma is pleasing to him in the Bible because that's an anthropomorphism. Or anthropopathism is like when God is grieved. We see this even from the beginning of Genesis 6, where it says God was grieved that he ever made man. It's the same word to repent. That means if it's either an anthropomorphism or anthropopathism, it means we don't take it literally, but rather it's a figure of speech that attributes feelings or thought processes of finite humanity to, a, to an infinite God. Because God couldn't change his mind, otherwise, he wouldn't be immutable, and therefore, he wouldn't be God. And God doesn't have regrets that he should repent. And Samuel says this directly in verse 29. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. God knows all things. He doesn't ever need new information from us. It's not like anything that we can say, God would be like, oh, yeah, I didn't put that into account. Now I can change my mind. He is perfectly righteous, so his conclusions on the matter will not change ever. So what does it mean when the Bible says that God is grieved or regretted or repented? Again, while the determinations of his mind are unalterable, what it does mean is God does change his outward dispensations of his providence. What I mean by that is that he changes his methods of engaging with men and with humanity. So while his character does not change, his outward disbursements of his will does. I like how John Gill would explain it when he says, Repentance is ascribed to God, though properly speaking it does not belong to him. Repentance is ascribed to God, though properly speaking it does not belong to him. So why all of this talk then? We know that this is done, this is shown to us for our benefit, that we would know a little bit more about God, even if it is beyond our categories. So, in the very least, we know that God isn't some nonchalant, disconnected being in the far reaches of the universe. It's quite the opposite of that. In fact, we could surmise that what God goes through is infinitely greater than what we could ever imagine. But what about saul how was saul's response was it repentance in verse 24 he does acknowledge his wrong he says i have sinned for i have transgressed the commandment of the lord and your words because i feared the people and obeyed their voice now therefore please pardon my sin and return with me that i may bow before the lord it's in verse 25 we see that while he does acknowledge some of his wrong, it seems far too easy. It's like saying, I was wrong, okay? Let's get back together. This you say after having multiple affairs with other people. It all just seems too easy. If someone said that, one would probably question if they understood the seriousness of the offense. So Samuel tells Saul that he will not return with him because he has rejected the Lord. And because he has rejected the Lord, the Lord has rejected him. So Saul makes his second appeal in the form of seizing the skirt of Samuel's robe. And when it tore, Samuel tells Saul that just like the robe tore, the kingdom will be torn away from him. And then Saul makes his final appeal in verse 30. He says, I have sinned, Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Once again, Saul's words reveal his heart. While he does admit that he sinned, like the first time he admits it in verse 24, he sinned because he feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now he admits that he sinned but asked Samuel to go back with him so that he could save face in front of the people. His words exposed his priority. He knew how to play politics, but didn't understand that politics are subject to God. It is not separate from God. It is under God. He was more anxious about being dishonored before the elders of Israel than he was being separated from God. And so we too are warned not to love the praise of men over the approval of God. So the text ends with the tragedy of communion being broken with someone that the Lord had chosen and even anointed. It ends with the prophet's grief and divine sorrow. Perhaps this is also a story to show us how no matter what outward circumstances are in our favor you could be good looking you could be tall you could be strong you could be a valiant fighter you could be smart you could be politically savvy all these things you can have them all you can be rich wealthy affluent Even if you have all these things, just like Saul had, it's the heart that matters more. It's the heart that matters more. But all these things will lead to a better king to come, which ultimately leads to the coming of the perfect king in whom we can fully place our trust. This is the king we know who has been revealed to us as Jesus Christ. You can trust in other kings. You can even trust yourself, but it's folly. Kings will perish, princes are mortal, you will die. But there is a king that is eternal, and that when you place your trust in him, it is not folly. He will never fail you, and you will be with him for all eternity. I'll end with Psalm 146, verses 3 to 5 to end the sermon. Psalm 146 verses 3 to 5 says this: Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord. His God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we are reminded this morning that we are not to put, ourse- put our trust in princes, on earthly kings, even in ourselves. But we are to place our trust in you, to obey you. And so we repent of our ways when we have trusted not in you, we thought that we were being progressive by trusting in other things, in other people, other philosophies, ideologies, other idols, other divinations. So help us to continually walk in repentance, progressing, maturing, becoming more like you, Jesus Christ. With every step, may we follow you all our days. Let's take this time to pray and lift up a prayer to the Lord. Asking God to continue to sanctify us, sanctify this church as we follow him in all our ways. Let's pray.